Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and thank you for joining us today for Live Dharma Sunday. Please note that if you have called in to listen to today's broadcast, that all lines have been placed on mute to avoid background interference. If you're listening from any of our Bright Dawn sites, note that it is not necessary to call in. You may have to wait a second or two for the loading and buffering process to complete, but if there is still no audio, please refresh your page. For more information about Bright Dawn and its activities and links to our social media sites, please visit brightdawn.org. Once again, thank you for listening to Live Dharma Sunday and enjoy the talk. Morning and welcome everyone to Live Dharma Sunday for May 6, 2018. Koyo Kubose here. So very, very glad you joined us. Well, <clears throat> this morning I'd like to share an email that I received from my sister uh, recently. But I'd like to give you a little background first. Um, <clears throat> she is a uh, a tea teacher, a teacher of uh, the Japanese tea ceremony. Now, <laughs> she does, she doesn't like that translation or the phrase the phrase tea ceremony. She just doesn't like that. Um, the Japanese term for uh, is chanoyu. Chanoyu literally means hot water for tea, but it's so it's an aesthetic art. It's a life way, um, but say tea ceremony, she says she, that gives the wrong impression maybe. Uh, but she's, so she's a tea teacher. You know, if you go to Starbucks, uh, the kind of tea that's made in tea is uh, matcha, green tea and it's whisked into a froth with you add hot water. So it's really uh, what's at Starbucks what's called the green tea latte. <laughs> so if you want to get a, an idea of the unique taste of matcha tea, you can go and order at Starbucks. Uh, <clears throat> well, how does she become a, t- a tea teacher, my sister? Well, <laughs> We owe a lot to our parents. See, what happened is in the mid-60s, uh, 1960s, my father turned 60 years old because okay, he was born in 1905, so it was 1965 he turned 60. And there's a custom in the Japanese culture where they celebrate certain birthdays, very significant. And 60 is one of them. And... Uh, it's usually a you know very festive gathering, and uh, the the, uh, the birthday boy they have a special red hat and vest that he wears 
And it symbolizes a new birth, new life. Because I guess culturally, socially, when you turn 60, oh, most of your social family responsibilities you know, are not a heavy burden anymore. Okay, Maybe children are grown and you don't have to be so ambitious in, in your occupation and whatever. So I says, well, you know, start a new venture in life. Okay, that's the sentiment. And so my father did. He, he had, he decided to go back to Japan and study Buddhism at the Otani Buddhist College and get his master's degree there. So he, he and his wife went, okay, and they ended up staying five years in Kyoto, Japan, where he, he did his, and you know, Buddhist studies and my mom studied tea, okay, in the Urasenke Tea School. Okay, there are several different traditions of uh, tea schools founded historically by famous teachers, and they have their own schools. Okay, the Urasenke uh, branch uh, was founded by Rikyu, he's a very famous uh, person in Japanese history, and um, so they have a headquarters there in Kyoto, Japan, and my sister, oh, in the 1980s, so she was maybe, oh, yeah, maybe late, she was in her late 30s or early 40s, decided to, she went to a Midorikai, which is the special school in Kyoto, Japan, and she studied tea and stayed there for so many years. Came back and started to help her mom. Our mom, because uh, my mom started a, a, a tea classes for her group when she came back from Japan in the early seventies, and and uh, in fact had remodeled her living room in the rectory into a tea room with tatami mats on the floor and shoji screens on the windows and so forth at our hearth installed in the floor and uh, shoji uh, sliding screens for the entrance and she gave tea lessons there. So my sister Joyce um, was helping her and then after my um, our mom passed away in 2002 by, uh, by that time Joyce was married and then her husband Robert and they had a a brownstone, I think. Uh, I don't remember exactly what you call the architectural style, north side of Chicago. Um, had three floors on it, three levels, and she uh, remodeled the top floor into a tea area. And she took over, and for the last, uh, what, uh, 16 years, she's been teaching tea and uh, and in the tea, sir, tea, in Chanoyu, uh, they have a, it's a, the room is constructed such that you enter in and maybe diagonally across from the entrance. Uh, say the room has four corners, so if the entrance is in one corner, 
opposite corner, farthest away from the entrance, is sort of the most respected spot in a room. Okay. And in that corner, in Japanese architecture and culture, they have a, what they call a tokonoma. It's just that it sets off this corner as an aesthetic place. They usually have a natural wood column set out a few feet from the wall, and then this, and then the floor is raised a little bit to make a little platform there. Okay. And then they have a, it's, it's a place where a scroll can be hung and a small flower arrangement can be put in front of it. And this is prepared whenever you go into a, a Japanese um, living room, I guess. In, most of them have this area. And so it's also there in the tea room, too. And guests come in and, you know, you, they, uh, one object of the Chanoyu is to it's a gathering and give the share the four principles of tea, you know, tranquility, respect, harmony, and bring out these qualities and have a gathering. And part of the gathering is to, of the rooms, oh, look at, and there's this scroll here with this poem calligraphy by a famous teacher or something, and, and they would see the nice flower arrangement, okay, and they would be served tea, and then you'd learn about the maker of this particular tea bowl or something like this, okay? It's a, it's a unique experience. So the teacher, as part of preparation for a, a gathering, you know, would choose a particular scroll, would go and make a certain uh, flower arrangement, and all this, of course, has to do with the seasons, okay? And uh, so that's the background, back, back story. And the email I got from my sister who teaches in, in Chicago, it says, uh, spring has finally arrived. This is Dad's scroll written in the late 80s. I used it last week when the daffodils finally bloomed. And, and she had an attachment showing the actual scroll, picture of the scroll, okay? And it was a calligraphy in Japanese. And it, in Japanese, it reads, Ika hiraite tenka haru. I didn't butcher that too bad, okay? The translation is just wonderful. The translation is, one flower opens, spring is everywhere. Oh, I just couldn't stop thinking about that. I had never heard that before. Um, but I love it. Well, today I want to introduce a guest to give us a Dharma glimpse, Noah Mayo, who was part of our LM9 group and lives in Utah. And in fact, uh, he had just written a book, which I had, I have, I wrote a short endorsement for it that'll be included in his book. Um, 
It's called No Nonsense Buddhism for Beginners. Okay. I received a, a PDF of the manuscript, and uh, you know, Noah Mayo is a very uh, clear, simple, straightforward uh, writer, and um, I really like his style, his grasp of the basics. Okay, not only you know in his head, but in, in his spiritual quality too, okay, and he could he can he could express, okay, his what he what he knows what he learns and what he experiences very well. So I really, and we will also feature that in our next oneness newsletter. So he's going to give us the Dharma glimpse today, and Noah Mayo. Hello, this is Noah Mayo Rochetta, and I'm excited to share this Dharma glimpse with you. Uh, I have a hobby practicing paragliding and paramotoring, and one thing that uh, I really enjoy about uh, paramotoring, it's like a it's like a parachute over your head, and you have a, a giant fan or a propeller on your back, and you're free to travel around and see anything you want to see you can fly really high or you can fly really low it's a, a very liberating form of aviation and it feels very uh, freeing because you're sitting essentially sitting in a cloth chair uh, dangling from these strings flying around um, and recently I've been working with my instructor to help him teach other students and, and put together a curriculum for for teaching. I want to be an assistant uh, teacher for that. And one of the processes uh, entails um, towing people uh, behind with a pulley system. And uh, you so imagine yourself standing in a field with this giant wing uh, hanging behind you. It's just on the floor. And then in front of you, you have this long line, hundreds and hundreds of feet of of a of a uh, a line or a rope that uh a system at the end of that starts to reel you in and pull you in as the rope pulls you the wing behind you inflates over your head just like a parachute and then it and then you kind of take off and 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 as you're being pulled you're being pulled up into the sky and we call this towing this is one of the um processes to learn how to paraglide um, so your options are go find a really tall mountain and then run off of it so that you can fly and practice flying down or a, bi a big field and you can get towed into the air with a line. So the, the style that we train with is this tow line. And I had this correlation of this experience with the Dharma um, because I was thinking when you when you first start learning to fly, you have this rope that you depend on and it pulls you through the air and for all intents and purposes, at that moment, you are a kite. And as long as that rope has tension and it's pulling you, um, and the wing over your head is like the kite, it uh, it guarantees you'll stay in flight. But at some point, um, you graduate from that phase to no cord pulling you, and now you have a motor on your back, and, it, and that's what propels you through the air. And... 
I thought about the, the Dharma with this because I thought that, in a way, that was the Buddha's journey. You know, he was going from teacher to teacher, guru to guru, learning what he could. But at some point, the moment of his liberation was the moment of cutting that cord and realizing he was, it was just him now. He was on his own. He was the source of it all in the same way that when you're paramotoring, you become the source of, uh, of it all when you're using the motor on your back and you no longer rely on that cord or the teacher at the end of that cord, at the end of that cable that's kind of pulling you along. And that was a fun correlation in my head to, to think about that and to think what we're striving for in our studies of, of the Dharma and of Buddhism. Uh, we're striving to follow the example of the Buddha in the sense that we're striving to learn uh, to be on our own, to, to become uh, enlightened like he was, uh, realizing that we are the source of it all. There are no external agents acting upon us as far as uh, good and bad, righteous and evil. It's all inside of us. It's in, it's in our minds. Um, and that was the, uh, the little story I wanted to share. You know, uh, at some point... Uh, we can stop and evaluate our own lives and we can look and say, am I still tethered to a cord? Not that that's a bad thing, right? Because uh, it, it can be very instrumental and helpful to be tethered to that cord when that's where you are uh, at that specific stage in your training. Um, but I think it's something to look forward to or to look at is at what point do I cross that threshold? Am I brave enough to embark on this journey on my own in the same way that the Buddha did and realize that it's just me um, and then that liberation that that follows being able to go and explore and propel ourselves by ourselves uh, I think is a really neat uh, mental image and correlation with what the Dharma is trying to accomplish that's the Dharma glimpse I have for you thank you for listening thank you very much yeah, that's really nice. <laughs> yeah, that an analogy there. Uh, the point being made reminded me of a current um, uh, student in the coming up uh, class, the next class. And I remember in one of her reports, she said something like, if my memory serves, uh, when you take a, um, a a class like this where you're you, you're doing an assigned reading, writing a report on it, and then they get together in a weekly telecom group, small group teleconference, and they share, um, uh, they kind of process because uh, they're instructed, they're given instruct study guidelines about how to find some kind of personal teaching, you know, from the readings. And of course, that we would cover the whole purpose of our Bright Dawn Centers. Bright Dawn means Gyome, which is my father's Dharma name, and so we use his books, uh, Everyday Suchness, Center Within, and so forth, uh, which is a collection of uh, essays. And how how can you internalize? How can you personalize these teachings that you you know reading? And so, as a student, this she said, "Oh, I, you know, 
I guess the assumption was that you have to dig into this reading and and find the teaching. Then she realized after a while, being in this program, that you're not really digging into the reading material. You're digging into yourself. And I think this is what is the turning point in our program. You could sort of say that's the point when sort of when the student gets it, <laughs> you know, before they're relying on all the reading material, okay? So what? They have to rely on themselves. That's sort of a, you know, dramatic aspect there. And uh, so when the, there's a nice saying that I really like that sort of makes this same point. It says, Great teaching requires great listening. It automatically means that you can, you know, you'll never if you if you're not ready, if you haven't done the preparatory the work, you'll never find a great teaching. Okay, it goes hand in hand. Okay, yeah, there are, there are some something that might really, you know, help you, but. If it's really going to impact you, you gotta, you have to have the listening skills. You have to be empty enough to receive something. If you think you know everything, how can you learn anything new? So, um, so that, uh, well, another analogy that came to mind as I was listening was uh, I studied with a. Uh, Rinzai Zen Master Kobori Nanre Roshi. And in one of our conversations, he mentioned an analogy of what studying Buddhism, studying the Dharma, meditating, whatever practices you, you're doing, is like building a runway. Okay? A long runway. And then you get to a point where the whole purpose of this is you start running and you're running up this runway you know it's sort of sort of maybe like a highway construction that's not completed it's, it's it's rising up going over another it's rising up and then you get to the end it's you're way up high but you it's not completed there the road ends there so you built this runway so that you can get momentum and height and then you jump off the end and if you got a paraglider on your back, there you go. Okay, there you go. Um, well, and I guess you could probably um, speculate or whatever takes off. You know, they, they don't get they don't get the the end the the place where they they're flying. Their liberation, okay? They might get so enamored of the great runway. Ooh, look at this, look at this, you know? But the whole purpose was to build on that, be able to use that, run on it, and then, in a sense, you leave it behind, okay? Of course, you always have high gratitude and respect, and it's a debt you can never repay for all the people that helped you and 
along the way. Okay? But there's a point where you have to take off, point where you have to release the tow line <laughs> if you're going to engage in this sport at all. Okay. Well, that's all for today's broadcast. Till next time, keep going, keep paragliding, and you have a wonderful day. Thank you.